trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. In 1620, separatists from the Church of England sailed across the Atlantic aboard the Mayflower. Their quest was to preserve their liberty as they saw it and worship God in accordance with their understanding of the Bible. They also became among the most famous colonists in American history because of their association with the annual observance of Thanksgiving. My guest today is an internationally known expert in the history of the Pilgrims and has come to know two different stories of the group. One is a tale of religious refugees who established Thanksgiving and democracy in New England. The other is of invaders who portrayed their indigenous allies, stole their land, went to war against them, and even enslaved them. John G. Turner is an award-winning author and professor of religious studies at George Mason, and he teaches the history of religion in the United States with concentrations on evangelicalism, Mormonism, and 17th century Puritanism. His 2020 book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty, reveals the truth in both sides of the pilgrims and focuses on the intellectual, religious, and political and physical struggles over liberty. As we approach the Thanksgiving holiday season, I could think of no other topic than to dive into this one. In fact, today I just carved the uh, Thanksgiving turkey for our students. And so this is going to be a really interesting episode. Dr. Turner, welcome to the show. Thanks, President Washington. It's never too early to start feeling thankful and eating turkey. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, look, before we get started, talk to us a little bit about your Thanksgiving. How do you spend it? What do you do? Pretty small and intimate. You know, I'm married and I have one daughter this year. We're hosting my mother, who hasn't visited for around 18 months. She was last here right before the pandemic. So it's probably just going to be the four of us. Maybe some friends will join us and we'll eat a lot and get sleepy afterwards. I know how that goes. So we've brought into that idea of the traditional Thanksgiving meal. But is that the meal that they ate on the very first Thanksgiving or the proverbial first Thanksgiving? Well, you probably should stick with your 2021 meal and not try to eat like the pilgrims. The one thing we know for sure they ate was venison. Now, that might not sound too bad. And they definitely shot some sort of fowl. Could have been turkeys, could have been ducks and geese, but no pumpkin pie, no cranberry sauce. And they probably also ate some other more funky things like eels, which were pretty common in the waterways of New England. So I don't know if you want to add that in this year (laughs) or not. Probably not. I'm always interested in why some people choose different directions for the research 
Why the story of Mayflower and why the Plymouth Colony? What was the appeal? You know, it's a totally famous and well-known American story, but it, it actually appealed to me for that reason. It's one of the origin stories that Americans tell themselves and learn about in elementary school to explain what became the United States. And I think it's had a lot of appeal because it is a sunny and attractive origin story. Mm -hmm. Certainly, people have contested it for a long time. But that's the sort of story that I like, something that matters to a lot of people, but has a lot more complexity than most people realize at first glance. Okay. One of the things we do at the Access to Excellence podcast is we tell the whole unvarnished and unmitigated truth. And so I won't hold back on any questions. My philosophy is, is that we give our students as much information from a research perspective as we can, and we position them to make good decisions in society. And so let's start off with the hard questions first. What side of the argument do you come down on? Were they liberty seekers or invaders who abuse the native people of the land? Well, I'm going to say both. You know, I think that's the best answer to that question. Um, that's, safe, that, that's probably the safest answer. Yeah, you know, but I don't think it's a it's a safe necessarily safe middle ground because you might not you might not make anyone happy when you say that history is complex and and doesn't have simple answers. So, they were liberty seekers, but they weren't seeking liberty as we understand it in early 21st century America or at least not exactly as we would understand it. So they had their own ideas about liberty. These folks had suffered religious persecution in England, so they were going somewhere where they could exercise what they understood as their Christian liberty, which meant being able to have church according to their understanding of the Bible. They weren't like the folks who ultimately ended up in Rhode Island with Roger Williams. They didn't want a religiously open society in which different groups of Europeans could come and establish different churches. They wanted a haven for their own church. So they wanted liberty in that sense. And they also cared about political liberty. The Mayflower Compact, which they signed aboard the Mayflower, it enshrined that principle that laws and offices rest on the consent of the people. Didn't use exactly that language, but that was the basic principle. That mattered a great deal to the early settlers of Plymouth Colony as well. So you have to tell that side of the story, and you have to try to figure out what liberty meant to them, which means you have to enmesh yourself in their world as much as possible. That is one side of the story. Now, the other side of the story is that ultimately, as their population grew, they supplanted and ultimately went to war against many of the native communities that they at first established relatively decent relations with. And it's a pretty grim story as the decades pass of finding ways to usurp native land, gain ownership of it, gain dominion over it, and contend against people who resisted and sometimes defeat them, enslave them, 
And you kind of have to hold those two sides of the story together. Now, they were, at least in a uh, very, very general sense, they were brownist, right? Mm-hmm. And they were fleeing a level of religious persecution that oftentimes ended in death. I don't know what it was about the particular theology that Brown preached, mm-hmm. but for some reason, there was a lot of disdain for it in England. And if you were caught even with his writings or passing out his writings, in many cases, you were executed. So I get why they would want to leave. You're referring to Robert Brown, who denied that the monarch, whether it was Queen Elizabeth or King James, could be the head of the church. For him, Jesus Christ was the only head of the church. And Christians had an obligation to withdraw from the national church and form their own congregations. Now, in the context of England in the late 1500s, early 1600s, that's not just religious dissent, it's sedition. And so that's why these separatists really take it on the chin. And as you said, a number of them are executed in the 1580s, 1590s. That crackdown that actually encourages some Protestants to say, hey, this national church is corrupt and to want to withdraw from it. And these folks, they didn't want to get killed or fined or imprisoned. They took refuge in the Netherlands for a while. Life was not easy for them there, and they decided to risk establishing a colony across the ocean, which really is a foolhardy thing to do in the early 1600s, really high death rate for anyone founding a colony, but they thought it was worth the risk. It seems like nailing down the first Thanksgiving is pretty problematic. You write about that, the 1621 celebration was more of an English harvest festival. The 1623 Summer Festival, some believe, is more of the origin of our Thanksgiving Day because it contained a combined both the religious and the social celebrations. So what actually happened in the fall of 1621? So that's a great question. There are a number of things in history that hinge on a pretty flimsy or sparse documentary basis. And the first Thanksgiving is definitely one of them. There's only one description in a single letter written by a Mayflower passenger named Edward Winslow. And what he describes is after the harvest in 1621 has been brought in, and you have to keep in mind half of these colonists died in the first winter, so they had a lot to be thankful for that they'd had a good harvest. The governor of the colony, William Bradford, told them, essentially, take a few days off and have a particular celebration and time of recreation. And he sent men out to shoot fowl of some sort. They went out of fowling, is the language in the letter. (laughs) And one of the ways that they enjoyed themselves was firing their guns for recreation. You know, maybe some kind of target practice or something like that. And when they did that, their native allies, the Wampanoags, heard the gunfire, and a large number of their men, I think around 90, showed up to see what was going on. You know, were their allies under attack? Were their allies up to no good? What was happening? And so they show up, and the pilgrims invite them to stay. 
their leader, Usamiquin, more commonly known to the English as the Massasoit. He sends his men out and they shoot some deer and contribute to the feast. And, you know, that's essentially all that we know about it. And your question is a really good one, because for these English settlers, this wouldn't really have been a proper day of Thanksgiving, which was something appointed usually by a political leader, maybe by a church as well, to celebrate a particular blessing. And on a formal day of Thanksgiving, people would gather at a church, usually be there for several hours, hear some long sermons and long prayers, and then maybe have a feast afterwards. So that's why I say this is more like an English harvest festival, which doesn't mean it was totally secular. You know, obviously these settlers were thankful to God that they had survived the winter and they were going to have enough food to survive another one. But it might not really quite fit, you know, our traditional sense of a pilgrim Thanksgiving. No, I get it. I get it. Can I just Uh, add one thing to that? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, you know, we call it the first Thanksgiving. And different people have made different claims about that. There's some evidence that there could have been a Thanksgiving celebration in Virginia a couple of years earlier. I think a lot of folks in Virginia have pilgrim envy, Mm -hmm. so I don't know about that. I think the (laughs) evidence on that one's a little flimsy as well. But there could have been French Protestants down in Florida in the 1560s had a Thanksgiving. Essentially, having some sort of Thanksgiving was pretty common among European Christians and among many peoples. But we've sort of focused on this one as a Thanksgiving origin story and put a lot of weight on it. I get it. I get it. My understanding is that Thanksgiving was officially established by President Lincoln, who, after the North Civil War victory, proclaimed a national day of Thanksgiving be held the fourth Thursday of November. Right. So that's way in the 1800s, hundreds of years after the times that we're talking about now. It sort of evolves into an American holiday in the middle of the 19th century. Earlier American governments had appointed days of Thanksgiving as well. I think in his first year in office, your namesake, the other president, Mm -hmm. Washington, he established a, a late November day of Thanksgiving to give thanks for the establishment of the new government. And other presidents had designated days of Thanksgiving to celebrate military victories. And then Sort of as you move into the 1800s, New Englanders revive interest in these Plymouth colonists. And it's actually at that time that they start calling them the Pilgrims. And they begin sort of drumming up publicity surrounding a first Thanksgiving in Plymouth. And by the time Lincoln establishes that holiday, that idea of a Pilgrim first Thanksgiving has sort of taken hold in the American imagination. It's really not what I think most Americans necessarily first think of when they think about Thanksgiving today. They probably think of family and football, but it's still sort of inextricably linked culturally to the day on some level. Well, you got the fouling piece 
Right. <laughs> and it's interesting that the venison never seemed to cross over, right? I would wonder why that would be the case, given the popularity of venison uh, throughout the country. That's a great question. I, I don't know. It's certainly a lot easier to mass produce turkey. That might have that something. That might be it. Yep. But, you know, if anybody wants to mix venison into their Thanksgiving dinner, I'd be game for that. <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. So, in your mind, when should we regard the first Thanksgiving? That's ultimately an unanswerable question. Is it? You could argue for these various dates. It's not a question of ultimate importance. And I don't think any of those are so closely linked to the way that Americans celebrate Thanksgiving today. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of history, and this is one thing that I try to get at in my book, because we've been so fixated on the Pilgrims and Thanksgiving and the Mayflower Compact, that has been a really nice origin story for Americans, but they tend to drop the story after 1621. That's stopping at a pretty nice point in the story. And I think in terms of history, we're much better off if we push on with the rest of the story and see what happened to these people who had come together for this harvest festival in in 1621. You know, what happens next, I think, is more important than those several days they spend together. You are absolutely right. And this is my favorite holiday. It always has been. I love the bringing together of family. But more importantly, I've always been one to believe that we should set aside some time just to be thankful. Yeah. The reality is, is that we are blessed. We live in a blessed place. And overall, when you compare where we are in America to the world, it is a great country that provides great opportunity. And so people have a lot to be thankful for. We have a tradition in my household where we do just that. It occurs during the Thanksgiving, sometime maybe after the meal, you know, when everyone is overstuffed and before people start to fall asleep. You kind of just go around the room and people talk about what they're thankful for for that year. And it's always a blessing to hear people think back to the good things that they can look at in their lives and say, this is what has been very, very important to me over this year. And this is why I have to be thankful. I like that. You know, sometimes for some people, it's been a, a rough year. Yes. And not every late November, all individuals are going to be at a point where they necessarily feel happy and thankful. That's right. That's right. But, you know, I think there is value in having that as a reminder on the calendar. First of all, when we get together with our families, we're celebrating the fact we're still here, right? Uh, and that, that is the point that we talk about, even when you had a bad year. Like, yeah. you know, the COVID year yeah. was a particularly tough year for my family. Even when we had that year, the reality was we were still here. We could look forward to great years in the future because we're still here. Absolutely. And there's a blessing in that. Yeah. One of my favorite readings, and this is a little bit little bit off topic, but you'll have to indulge me, okay. um, is the Confessions of St. Augustine. Okay. In, in that, he has a section where he talks about some times where he nearly died and some of his frailties and shortcomings. And then he ends with this prayer of thanks. And ultimately... It's that he exists. He recognizes that his existence is a wondrous thing. And 
I think both as individuals or when we gather as families and communities, at rock bottom, we have that remarkable thing to be thankful for, regardless of circumstances. That's right. That's right. Because we all know what the alternative is, right? (laughs) Understood. Let, Let me mention one other early New England Thanksgiving thing that I like. So different communities, they didn't have an annual Thanksgiving, but when something good happened, they would designate a day of Thanksgiving. And there's a community, a town in Massachusetts, now Massachusetts, then Plymouth Colony, Situate. And in December of 1636, they had a day of Thanksgiving. I think because they'd resolved some conflicts in the church, they were happy, they wanted to celebrate. And they spent about four hours in church in the dead of winter, it must have been freezing cold, in worship. And they record this in their church records then making merry to the creatures, the poorer sort being invited of the richer. So families that were well off invited families that were less well off to feast with them afterwards. I totally love the fact that in 2021, Thanksgiving is often about a small nuclear family like mine. Right maybe with some grandparents. But I also like that idea of this is for the community and we have to find ways to reach out and bring others into our celebration. I think that's a great model. No, I get it. I get it. So let's talk about the pilgrims and let's talk about the rest of the story. What was their interpretation of the Bible? What was it that separated them? For them, I think it was a particular understanding of the church. So they basically had a similar understanding of the Bible in a general sense, with, it's shared with other uh, English Protestants. But they thought a church was only a true church if true, genuine Christians came together and covenanted together and then exercised the liberty that was, was an important word for them, to choose their own leaders. So they didn't think that a queen or a king could appoint bishops over the church. They didn't think that church courts could punish people. Those were matters of congregational liberty. So in terms of how to run church, they had quite a lot in common with congregationalists and Baptists that folks might be familiar with today. Oh, yeah. But for them, that was at the core, the liberty of Christians to choose their own officers, to admit new people into the church, and to discipline people who strayed. So kind of congregational liberty was utmost importance to them. You actually start to see some of the early foundational values of America, right, coming out of that out of those tenets, out of that basic understanding of religion and its relationship to the government, right? You can see how you would have a strong belief in the separation of church and state. You can see how emanating from that thought, they would be, okay, well, you can govern the country, right? Mm -hmm. But religion should be independent and should have their own governing structures relative to those entities that they actually control, right? So for them, if a congregation chose a man as its minister, the government, at least in theory, shouldn't have the ability to interfere in that. You know, that was a matter of congregational liberty. And in a sense, 
it's a democratic form of church government. And some of the folks connected with the pilgrims in England and the Netherlands, they own up to that at a time when democracy was sort of a dirty word. No, I get it. And so there's something of a congruence between people choosing their own church leaders within the body of Christ and asserting the liberty to choose their own political leaders within the body politic. There are some aspects of this that, in my opinion, were not as progressive, right? When you look at the Mayflower Compact, Mm -hmm. it's signed by 41 men. Mm -hmm. I think they said that there might have been 100 men on the boat, but 41 signed it. But there were women and children on that boat, too. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there was a single female signatory. Is that right? No, there wasn't. And it certainly wasn't considered at the time. So there were about 102 Mayflower passengers. Not all of them, by the way, were of the same religious persuasion. Oh, that's right. Some of them were so, some of them were traitors, and some of them were adventurists, right? They, they were, exactly. Yeah. It's a bit of a, a mixed multitude. But nearly every adult male on the ship, whether servant or master, signed this compact. It wasn't 100%, but it's actually pretty close because there were a good number of women and children among the passengers as well. But no, it's not progressive in a 2021 sense at all. There's no thought given to incorporating women within the body politic. And certainly there's no thought of incorporating native peoples either. Later on, when there are some people of African descent in the colony, they, as far as I know, never exercise these sorts of political liberties either. Did they step on Plymouth Rock? That's a great question. Have you ever been to Plymouth, President Washington? I actually have been to Plymouth. Okay. You might remember Plymouth Rock is not very impressive. Exactly. It's under this little portico. It looks like something somebody might have by their mailbox, you know, next to the street. (laughs) It's not the most impressive landmark. Now, back in the 1600s, it was bigger. This rock has been abused over the years. It has been been split in two. People used to take pieces off of it. Absolutely. It it split in half at one point and was kind of put back together. And so... Most likely, this was basically at the shore back in the 1600s. The idea that the pilgrims came ashore on the rock, it rests on a pretty flimsy chain of transmission. You find people talking about this and writing about this in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Now, those people are really old at the time, so they claim 70 years ago, somebody who was 80 years old told me these people stepped on the rock. (laughs) Yeah, it might have been a great place to land, but the pilgrims certainly didn't put any significance on it. So we'll just say maybe. No, okay. I hear you. Let's talk a little bit about what happened relative to their relationship with the native indigenous population that was already there. What were the different tribes that the pilgrims encountered? Was there a leader or a personality that they had to deal with more than the others. You mentioned someone a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about that relationship. Yeah. First, I think we have to back up and set the stage a little bit. You know, we're living through a pandemic, 2020, 2021. The native peoples of southeastern New England 
lived through a far more devastating pandemic in the several years before the Mayflower. People still are not sure what it was. Typhoid's one possibility. It wasn't the bubonic plague. It could have been a number of things. In that part of New England, in some cases, whole communities are more or less wiped out. 90% fatality rates. And so when the Mayflower shows up, these people are reeling. The umbrella term that is used for most of the native communities in southeastern Massachusetts today is Wampanoag. I think so there w- meaning that that group of indigenous people had gone through some sort of pandemic. Apocalyptic uh, pandemic. I mean, really? it's just terrible. So where the pilgrims show up in what is now Plymouth, it was a native community called Patuxet. And it is vacant when the Mayflower arrives because there are only a few survivors and they've moved elsewhere. Okay. So the pilgrims, when they start walking around, they see a lot of graves. In some cases, they see bones that are not buried. This is absolutely devastating. At the same time, some of the enemies of the Wampanoags, Narragansetts in particular, they have not been touched, at least yet, by this pandemic. So when the English arrive, the Wampanoags are in a really uncertain situation. And you can imagine they could perceive benefit to these new allies. You could also imagine, well, they could see a new threat that they might want to wipe out. There are actually a lot of records show that for the most part, the native peoples of New England, when Europeans begin to show up, they are eager to trade and generally take a friendly stance toward new arrivals. And the Wampanoags had some particular reasons to do so. They saw a need for a valuable they needed, uh, alliance. They, they needed an ally. They needed an ally. And the pilgrims, I mean, they're, they are in tough situation themselves. Half of them die the first winter. So by the time... So why do they die the first winter? If they have the indigenous people there to help them, Yeah. right? Was it disease that got them? Or, yeah. you know, did they get the same disease that the Wampanoags got? Yeah, and that's a good question. So they are mostly suffering from malnutrition and scurvy. It was sort of starting to be known that you should bring something like lemon juice when you cross the Atlantic, but it wasn't fully known yet. And mostly, they don't have enough to eat. They've got scurvy. They show up in November. It's already winter when they get there. They come ashore at Plymouth in December. It's a tough situation. The natives who are wary of them don't really make contact until February, and by then, they're already dying at a rapid clip. Oh, wow. When the Mayflower first anchors off Cape Cod, the uh, pilgrim men, they come out in armed, armored, and tromping around. There have been communities such as Patuxet, where English ships have shown up in recent years and kidnapped people and taken them to Spain Mm -hmm. uh, to be sold as slaves. So there's a lot of reasons to be wary. Now, the Mayflower does bring a different group of people, namely women and children. And so I think they take some time and observe them before really establishing contact. So let's pick up the story then. They struggle through that first winter, but at some point in time, they do befriend this group. And then what happens? 
they do form an alliance. Now, the English sort of make a record of the terms of that alliance. It's basically a, a mutual defense treaty. It's harder to know exactly how their native counterparts understood it, but there is a basic understanding they're going to come to each other's aid and assistance. There are some native men who help the pilgrims plant their crops that first year, teach them how to fertilize it. You've probably heard of Squanto, who's probably the most famous native person on the scene. He had been among those who had been taken to Spain as a slave and managed to get back across the Atlantic, which is truly remarkable. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, they, they get some help, you know, in terms of surviving and particularly being able to be in a position to survive a second winter. And I think both groups, they did have a perceived mutual interest. It was better for them to cooperate than to fight. And both sides do benefit from that. I do think it helps stabilize some of those Wampanoag communities, and it gives them a valuable and militarily threatening ally. And the pilgrims on their part, they definitely needed the support and assistance. So when does that cooperation break down, and how do they wind up as enemies? So it starts to shift, actually, pretty quickly. You know, after 10 years, there's certainly no longer a question about the survival of Plymouth Colony. By that point, thousands of mostly Puritan colonists begin coming to Massachusetts Bay and also to Plymouth and other parts of New England. And so that really shifts the dynamics. The English go from being, you know, a small beleaguered colony to a rapidly growing number of people. And they expand and they encroach on native lands to their west and on the Cape. And, you know, really by the 1640s, the situation is different. Now, the alliance endures uh, for half a century. Although the Wampanoag communities are increasingly disgruntled about English expansion and the fact that they become more domineering toward their allies. And by the early 1670s, things have really fallen apart. The English become more and more aggressive in finding ways to get native land. Some of those land deals are on the up and up, but there's also a lot of coercion and swindling. And by 1675, both sides, to some extent, are looking for an excuse to go to war. You know, I think it's entirely reasonable that the Wampanoag leader at the time, Metacom, or Philip, as the English called him, he knew the trajectory was bad and wanted to resist. And the English, for their part, it's not as if they were necessarily trying to start a war, but ultimately through that war, they gained control of a lot of remaining native land in the colony. Religion and land, right? Religion and real estate. That's exactly right. So I've heard you say that you cannot speak about the pursuit of liberty that you write about in your book without speaking about liberty's starkest opposite, which is slavery. Mm -hmm. And your book explains how so many natives were in various forms of bondage to their Plymouth Colony families. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And let me just start by saying that Americans today, they still have two misconceptions 
about slavery in American history. Number one, most Americans think that it's just part of Southern history rather than part of American history. And number two, they think that it was a condition that afflicted only people of African descent and don't recognize the extent of native enslavement during the earlier period of American history. So slavery is associated with Virginia, but not with Plymouth. The reality is that in New England, as relations between English and natives deteriorated, when the two peoples went to war, the English claimed a right to enslave peoples taken in those wars. It happens in the 1630s in what's now Connecticut, but then it's really widespread in King Philip's War, in Plymouth Colony, and elsewhere. And in the wake of that war, hundreds, many hundreds of native people are taken captive, enslaved, in some places placed with English households in the colony or elsewhere in New England, but in some cases exported across the Atlantic as far away as Tangiers and possibly Madagascar. It's a really grim conclusion to the story. There's no way to get around that. War was a major reason for enslavement, but also in some cases debt was a reason to reduce people to servitude. So they can pay a debt some that's owed somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Now, the English would call these unfree natives, they would only use the term servant, or at least almost only use the term servant. I really see that as a euphemism. In some cases, people were enslaved for life, in other cases for a set number of years. Unlike African slavery, for the most part, children did not inherit a condition of enslavement from their mothers. But these people were in bondage, and slavery is definitely the more appropriate way to understand that. Oh, I understand. I understand. So, in your opinion, is Thanksgiving a day that the indigenous Americans and Native American people would probably celebrate? That's a great question. You know, every year in Plymouth on our Thanksgiving Day, there's a national day of mourning. And Wampanoags and other Native people of New England mostly and allies come for a much more mournful day of remembrance, a recognition of the fact that English colonization was devastating for their ancestors. Now, I can't speak for or wouldn't want to in any way try to speak for Native people across the country. You know, of course, a lot of people of Native descent also celebrate Thanksgiving the ways that a lot of other Americans do. But at least for some who have deep awareness of this history, it's a day of mixed emotions. So how about the colony's religious observances? Were they repressive or were they tolerant? Well, somewhere in between. So, you know, as I said, the pilgrims, when they showed up, they wanted to establish Christian liberty for themselves. They did not want other groups of English people to show up and establish competing churches or other religious options. So they weren't tolerant in the way that Americans in 2021 would understand it. They did believe in liberty of conscience to a substantial extent. So in England, one was obliged to 
belong to the Church of England. One was obliged to be baptized. One was required to attend the Lord's Supper at least a couple of times a year. The pilgrims didn't want to force anyone to join their church. They didn't actually think most people were fit members. So, that, you know, they didn't, they didn't force people to have their children baptized or come attend, receive the Lord's Supper. For the most part, they didn't even force people to go to church. Sometimes they did, but for the most part, if people came and just wanted to stay aloof from the established church, they could keep to themselves. Groups that showed up and wanted to do church differently, whether they were Quakers or Baptists, they did get persecuted and encountered a lot of conflict in the colony. Massachusetts Bay Colony ultimately executed four Quakers. Things didn't get quite that bad in Plymouth, but they were not trying to establish a bastion of religious toleration for all. They really wanted to carve out a space for their own particular church. You mentioned earlier about the Mayflower Compact. Mm Mm-hmm. I know there's some historical back and forth, but my understanding is that that compact was actually signed on the boat before actually coming into land. Literally while it was docked, they signed the compact. What was that all about? What was the actual motivating construct that would galvanize people to do that? You've been on this boat for months now, right? Right. right. They were procrastinators. (laughs) You see see land, and you're like, wait a minute. There's land here. I can get off this boat. Yeah, they're like— I'm going to stay on this boat and go through this document and sign it with you. Help me understand something else was going on there. Yeah, no, that's a great question, because I talked about the principle of the compact earlier without giving that context. So, yeah, this is a makeshift thing done at the last minute. You'd think— they had this long voyage. They could have worked these things out before they Look, man, saw I'm getting land. off the boat. Right. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. Well, me too. <laughs> but so the problem is they'd gone off course. They were aiming for what they would have called Northern Virginia back then, which would have been somewhere around the Hudson River. Ah, okay. Sailed into the eastern shore of Cape Cod, and then, you know, they couldn't really get through the shoals to the south. It was too dangerous. So they go up back around the tip of Cape cod and anchor there and they don't have any patent or permission to establish a government in new england and that's the reason for coming up with this makeshift agreement because otherwise the folks on the boat the other passengers and it's they're especially concerned about those who don't share their religious principles they might not obey whatever government is formed, and they might not stick together, and the colony might collapse. So that's the reason for drafting this really quickly and getting everyone to sign it. Now, some people look at that and say, well, therefore, it doesn't really matter very much. This is just something done out of convenience. And, you know, I think that's true, but there would be other ways of putting down a rebellion or mutiny or getting people to cooperate. And the way they chose is to incorporate at least almost all men initially into their political structure. And so out of that necessity comes what is an agreement of lasting significance for the colony. This is interesting, really interesting. So do you teach this history to our students? 
yeah, I do teach classes, not every semester, but many on American religious history. And, you know, since I'm really interested in it, it's an important part of that course for me. Let me tell you how I would like to approach that. I don't want to give students the narrative that they should necessarily all accept. And clearly, as we've talked, this is a contested history. So what I want them to do is to get a chance to read some of the documents that these folks generated and not just read those uncritically, but try to figure out the world in which these people lived and then ask questions. You have these writings from a number of the Mayflower passengers. You don't have writings. You don't have firsthand sources from the native peoples they encountered. That's right. What do you do with that? That's a huge question for students of early American history. And I'm not inclined to give my students easy answers to those questions. But the great thing about history, and particularly this history, the sources are really accessible. And what you need is some smarts, some common sense, and a lot of passion to want to understand them. And I, I want to invite students into those conversations. No, I love it. I love it. So before we take off, got a few Thanksgiving questions for you. I just want to, in rapid fire. Okay. Okay. Favorite dish? Stuffing. Light meat or dark meat? I'm ecumenical, but I start with the dark meat. What about you? I start with the dark. I mix it. I just kind of lump it all up in the plate. Cranberry sauce? Whole berry. Really? Lumpy? Lumpy. I don't call it lumpy. I call it whole berry. Wow. So you, you must so be you like smooth. The, oh, yeah. Without question. Uh, I like the highly processed stuff. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a disappointment, but there's still time for you to repent. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Raisins in the stuffing or anything da, exotic like that? Da, I do have, we do have raisins in our stuffing. And let me just clarify, stuffing has to be in the bird. Oh, yeah. Without okay. question. We're definitely good. And on no that. gravy out of the jar. Oh, yeah. Without question. All right. No gravy out of the jar. (laughs) Now, now, we add things. Collards, potato salad. There's a rice dish that I cook only on Thanksgiving. So we add things to the meal. It's not the quote-unquote traditional. Like, we don't do mashed potatoes because we do potato salad, right? Mm -hmm. So some differences. Well, you know, I think you start with the basics. And then every family, my wife has this tradition. She has these uh, little pearl onions. Uh-huh. They go great with potato stuffing and turkey, but I've never seen another family that has this dish. They're cooked, so they're hot. These oh, pearl yeah. onions, delicious. Okay, okay. Well, we do green bean casserole, and we do green beans. That's definitely a big one for us, too. This has been a very, very enlightening discussion. You've given us a lot to digest <laughs> over the Thanksgiving holiday. And I really want to thank you for giving us a few minutes to talk about the real history of Thanksgiving. Thanks, President Washington. It was fun. I want to thank my guest, Dr. John G. Turner, professor of religious studies at George Mason University and author of the book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying Happy Thanksgiving and until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. 
If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.